Well, good morning, Chili Bible. Glad y'all are here this morning. I uh, wanted to make just a real quick announcement. Uh, those of you who have been around for a little while uh, may remember uh, the name Pam Tucker. And Pam Tucker went to be with Jesus a couple of weeks ago. And the memorial service for Pam is at 2 p.m. this afternoon right here. Um, so if you um, would like to join us for that, we would uh, certainly encourage you to do so. Um, be a big encouragement to her family and to uh, those of us who knew and loved Pam uh, to come and celebrate her life. And um, so 2 p.m. this afternoon. Um, uh, well, uh, this is... Week two of uh, the series we're calling The Greatest Story Ever Told, which is our journey through the whole Bible in just three months. Okay? You get 15 weeks. Uh, you go through the whole Bible, Genesis uh, chapter 1 through Revelation 22. Uh, we're obviously going to skip a lot in that, uh, but we are going to, to uh, hit the high points here, we looked at creation. If you look at the picture on the screen behind me, uh, we were in creation last week. This week, we're uh, week number two, the fall on that timeline. Next week, we'll look at the flood, and then we'll look at Abraham and Jacob and his sons. Uh, get out of the book of Genesis, go to Exodus, then go to the law, then go to Joshua and Judges, kings and prophets, to the exile, to the rebuilding after the exile. Uh, to Jesus Himself, to the book of Acts, and uh, how the church got started. Look at what the church is and what Jesus has to tell us about it. And then look at the new creation that's yet to come uh, that's talked about in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. So uh, this is, this is our, these are our goals. I'll just go over this again, probably go over this several times over the course of this series. These are our goals. Number one, to get an overview of the whole Bible and how all of the various pieces... Uh, of the Bible all fit together. So, uh, so this is, if you ever worked at Jigsaw Puzzle, this series is designed to give you the box top, if you will, to give you the whole picture of how all the pieces fit together uh, so that as you go through your Bible, as you read, you can see, okay, I see that this goes here. I may not know how it relates to these other things yet, but this goes right here in this corner, and this goes here, and this goes there, and and now I have kind of the idea of how the whole picture looks at the end. And then also to see clearly how every part of the Scripture points to Jesus. Jesus Himself said that, uh, that every part of the Scripture, as we correctly understand it, points to Him in some way. And we want to take an opportunity to show you that. Uh, but also, number three, and this is the most important goal that we have, to help all of us, to love Jesus and follow Jesus better because we know Him and love Him more than when we started. Now you'll note that that's not a unique goal to just this series, right? That's our goal in everything that we do here at Chili Bible. Is we want to know Jesus better, we want to love Him better, we want to follow Him uh, more fully than we did when we started. The goal of our, of our study of God's Word is not that we be smarter sinners. It is that we are more faithful in our following of Jesus. And we want to look more like Jesus every day that we live a life of following Him. So, 
Uh, we're going to be in chapter 3 of Genesis this week. We're obviously racing through. We're all the way up to the third chapter of the book, right? Um, but we're going to be in chapter 3 of Genesis this, uh, this week. And as you make your way there, let me remind you what we saw last week. Okay? In the last week, uh, we saw that God uh, created the universe in the beginning. He made the sun and the moon and the earth and the stars and the animals and the plants and all of the fish and the birds and all of the creatures on the earth. Uh, he made human beings specifically in his own image. And God created everything in a way that we describe as perfectly harmonious goodness. But if you've lived very long at all, what you know for sure is that the world that you currently live in is not accurately described in that way, right? As you look at the world around you, you don't think perfect, harmonious goodness, do you? Maybe if you're at Disney World, you know, you think of it for that day as perfect, harmonious goodness, right? You have to get in line for one of those rides. Um, but... But um, but the world that we live in today is broken and scarred and painful and difficult. In fact, there's a whole lot of things, there's a lot, much longer list of things that we could probably come up with that are wrong with the world and the way it is than what are right. And so that leads naturally to this question. What happened? What happened? How did we get from Genesis 1 to where we are today? Where harmonious goodness is not the order of the day. Where things are more wrong than they are right more of the time. How did we get from the beautiful creation of, that God made in the beginning to the mess we're in now? Well, Genesis 3 is one of the chapters that helps us to answer that question. And I want to read it with you. Uh, as uh, and then walk through it with you. So if you are able, if you would stand in honor of God's Word as I read Genesis chapter 3. This is what the Word of God says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig, tree, uh, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then he heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. So you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. God our Father, when we read these things, we recognize truths that uh, that stick in our souls. That the world is broken and we are not where we started. And what's worse, we deserve it because we have rebelled against You. And Father, we we pray that You would help us to see not only the fruit of rebellion against You, but how Jesus came to redeem rebellious people like us and to put things back to right again. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, please be seated. Uh, the, the more observant of you will notice that between last week and this week, we skipped a chapter. Uh, we skipped chapter 2. And uh, that shouldn't be that surprising to you. If you're going to cover the whole Bible in 15 weeks, you're going to have to skip some stuff, right? Uh, but there are some things that I want to highlight for you that are in chapter 2. Uh, first of all, chapter 2 gives a detailed account of the creation of humanity. Uh, we already learned in chapter 1 that man, unique among, the, uh, unique among all the other creatures that, that God made, God specially crafted the man and the woman uh, and made them in His image, different from the way He made the rest of creation. Uh, but chapter 2 gives you more detail on that, tells you how the man was made and also how the woman was made. That she was taken from the man and uh, specially crafted to correspond to him. And second, we read that God placed the man and the woman in this perfect place, this garden, Garden of Eden, 
which was full of fruit trees and plants uh, that could meet all their nutritional needs without them having to work. How many of you would like to eat without working? Right? In fact, my favorite meal is one that someone else made. Right? <laughs> um, whatever that is, I not only want that, I want seconds and leftovers. Right? Um, someone else cooked for me, that's a great thing. Right? Um, third, after this, in chapter 2, you read that God gave the man and the woman one command and one command only, which was there's a the tree in the center of this garden that you're not to eat from. And he called it the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, you need to understand there was nothing magical about this tree. It didn't glow. There was nothing special necessarily about the fruit. What, what the fruit carried with it and the eating of the fruit carried with it was that you would have, um, based on your obedience to God's command concerning it, knowledge of good and evil. You would either know good because you obeyed God, or you would know evil from the inside if you disobeyed God. So, if you look at chapter 2, also verses 16 and 17, you'll see God's command, and His command is this. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And what God is emphasizing there is the abundance of His provision. You can eat of every tree in this whole garden, verse 17, but of this one tree, don't eat. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So what you get there is the is emphasis on the abundance of God's provision as well as the certainty of death if you violated God's command. And finally, chapter 2 also concludes with the uh, rejoicing in the union of the man and the woman. In accordance with God's design, it says they were naked and unashamed. They, they were completely vulnerable and disclosed to one another uh, physically, spiritually, emotionally, etc. Completely naked in every way and unashamed to be in one another's presence. The wonderful Amazing blessing. But that did not remain the way that things were, did it? As we read chapter 3, one of the first things that happens is we meet this new character. We meet this being, this creature called the serpent. Uh, we're not told much about this creature here in the chapter, but what we learn in the few verses that he appears is that he contradicts God's word. He impugns God's character. He deceives the woman. And then subsequent to all that, he is cursed by God. And later on in the Bible, we get the identity of this, this being, the serpent. And he is given multiple other names. He's called elsewhere the devil, the dragon, Satan, the accuser. Uh, in the book of Revelation, he's referred to as that ancient serpent. Same critter. Same dude. The serpent. Satan. And in the course of this chapter, you'll see the serpent, the devil, quietly lead our first parents into a deliberate act of rebellion against God's explicit command to them. 
But let me point out something else. What makes the, the deception easier is that the serpent first questioned God's Word. You see that? Look at your Bible there in chapter 3. Did God actually say, or if you have an NIV, it says something like this. Did God really say? Did God really say this? And uh, if you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, is that what God said? No. God said, freely eat from every tree in the garden. Except one tree, don't eat from that. Right? So not only did, did the serpent contradict what God said, but he twisted it to say the opposite of what he did say. He not only questioned it, and then on top of that, the woman then misstates back what God did say. And she also de-emphasizes in response the abundance of God's provision. And adds something God never said anything about. Right? God didn't say they couldn't touch it. He didn't say they couldn't hang a tire swing off of it. He didn't say they couldn't dance around it. He didn't say they couldn't, they couldn't do anything else with the tree. He just said, don't eat from that tree. Right? They could have picked the fruit and played baseball with it. It would have been fine. But they couldn't put it in their mouth. Right? That was the command. Don't eat it. Touching it had nothing to do with it. So she adds on to what God said, and she also follows the serpent in de-emphasizing what God emphasized, which was the abundance of His other provision. From there, the serpent outright denies the consequence, you won't surely die. And then he deceived her about the reasons for the prohibition in the first place. He goes after God's character. He says, well, you know, God is just really holding out on you here. God knows that if you eat from it, that you're going to have this good thing happen, and He doesn't want that for you. By the way, is this the way that Satan continues to work with us to this very day? He first questions God's Word, and then he denies it, and then he makes it seem like if we're disobedient, we'll get some benefit that God has been withholding from us. Still the same trick, right? Um, but here's what the th here's the thing that she didn't understand. She didn't understand that she and Adam were already like God. They already were like God. Remember how were they created? Chapter one, verse twenty six to twenty eight. They were made in God's image, so they were already like Him. And he said, you're going to know good and evil. But the knowledge that they gained was not like God's because God is perfectly good and cannot do evil. But together, the man and the woman became participants in evil and lost their goodness. So did they come to understand and not, did they have the knowledge of good and evil? Yeah, they knew what they lost, goodness, and they knew what they gained, evil. It was a horrible trade. And I think the thing that made the deception particularly effective was the fact that they didn't immediately drop dead. Right? God said, 
you will surely die. So I think when you know Adam's standing there watching this go down with Eve and the serpent, says that he is with her. She eats some of the fruit and she doesn't die immediately. And so Adam is like, well, maybe there's something to this. Give me some of that fruit. <laughs> right? They didn't immediately die. But nevertheless, God's Word was proven true. They were meant to live forever with God. But death came for them and for us in many ways. One of the things you need to understand about the Bible is that when it talks about death, it's not primarily got the cessation of your physical functions in mind. It's primarily about separation. One of those forms of separation is obviously the separation of your spirit from your body. That's the one that we understand very clearly. But there are several other forms of death that are highlighted for us. In fact, this one act of rebellion creates five different forms of separation from death that we can clearly see in this passage. And the first and most important one of these is in verses 1 to 13 and verse 24, separation from God. If verses 1 to 13 show us anything, what they show is human beings separated from God and from their created relationship with Him. Instead of listening to His Word and obeying it and submitting to it, they disregarded it. And as a result, they go from naked and unashamed to what? To Operation Fig Leaf. Uh, we got to find a way to cover up our bodies from one another and we got to hide from God when He comes looking. Right? God comes to visit them in the cool of the day and they're, they're going to hide. Now think about how dumb this is, right? We've already read in chapter 1 that God is the being who created everything that exists in the universe. The sun, the moon, the stars, and all of their vast array with all of their vast distances between them. And who does so not by any kind of like magic incantation, but simply by saying, let there be and there is. And you think that you're going to hide from this being. Like, where are you going to go? Right? This is like your four-year-old hiding in your car. <laughs> right? Like, where are you going to get where I can't find you? <laughs> right? Uh, this, is, this is, you're going to be, your presence is obvious. Right? Somehow you're going to duck behind a tree and hide from the God before whom all the universe lies open and bare. But nevertheless, they hide from Him. But their hiding is not just silly, it's also deeply sad because it reflects the fact that sin has created a break in their relationship with God. And they're no longer comfortable being in His presence. And God will eventually make it so they can't dwell in His presence. That's verse 24. Whereas before they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, at the end of the chapter, where are they? Out of the garden with the way back in blocked by angels and a flaming sword. 
cut off from God. And by the way, the Scripture says that this is a separation that continues because every human being comes from these two original two people. We're all born separated from God, just like they are. We're all born in the same way, and we all inherit the same tendencies towards sin that they have. And we sin, we act on that sin nature as soon as we have consciousness and the ability to do it. I never had to teach any of my kids to lie. I never had to teach any of them to be selfish. I thought I was a fairly selfish person. But a little infant can out-selfish the best of us, right? <laughs> they are demanding and selfish and, and self-centered, and they deceive and lie as they come out of the womb, right? Why? Because they're born sinners. Because they're descended from Adam and Eve, just like you and me. I never taught my kids to fight. They do that naturally. That's hardwired, right? Why? Because they're sinners. They're born that way because they come from Adam and Eve after the fall. We're also separated from one another. Look at verse uh, 7, 12, and 13, and verse 16. Uh, you know, in, in chapter 2, the man and the woman rejoice in their union. The man sees her and he says, if I can be a little paraphrastic here, this is it. This is what I have been waiting for. He is so glad to, to have a, a creature on the earth that corresponds to him. And God blesses their union. And He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And that word one flesh there, the word for oneness there, is the same word that God uses in speaking about Himself and His own nature as the triune God in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where He says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, that when the man and the woman are together, they're experiencing a oneness that is experienced nowhere else outside of God's own nature. Part of our image as God, as, as, as people born in the image of God, made in God's image. There's a oneness to husband and wife. But now, at verse 7, we don't have oneness anymore. Instead of naked and unashamed, we've got, we've got to cover ourselves. We've got to at least make ourselves a fig leaf loincloth because I am ashamed to stand in the presence of the one woman on earth. Instead of being one with my husband, I can no longer even bear to have him look at me uncovered. Think about this. There's a level of separation and brokenness. They no longer feel comfortable in each other's presence. By the way, this is still true. People hate it when other people know the worst things there are to know about them. The worst thing that Adam and Eve knew about each other is that they were both chosen rebels against God. And they experienced deep shame for the first time. And they're no longer comfortable in one another's presence. By the way, what is the worst thing about you? Just yell it, yell it out, right? 
nobody doing that. Why? Because we are ashamed to do that. We do not want anybody to know the worst thing about us. And in fact, we're very, very careful and very, very reluctant to ever tell anybody our deepest and darkest secrets. Why? Because we know that there's a good chance that if people really know everything there is to know about us, they will reject us, right? And we're ashamed. Where does that come from? Genesis chapter 3. Sin causes us to feel shame for who we are. When God confronts um, the couple, what happens? They start shifting the blame. Verses 12 and 13. The man blames the woman and God. And then himself. Right? He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me so her fault, your fault, oh, and then my fault. Right? Uh, the woman shifts the blame also. She doesn't have her husband to blame because she gave him the fruit, so she blames the serpent. Well, the serpent deceived me, and, and then I ate. Neither one of them is willing to just straight out tell the unvarnished version of the truth, which is, I sin. And worst of all, in verse 16, we see that competition and struggle and domination will enter into this formerly blessed union of husband and wife. The word desire there, verse 16, where it says your desire shall be for your husband, it means your desire will be to rule over your husband. But he will rule over you. By the way, neither one of those is a good word says, your desire will be to rule over your husband. Your, he will rule over you. The word rule over there is a word that means dominate, oppress. This is not, this is not Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and following. Christ, love your wife like Christ loved the church. That isn't this. This is, in a natural sinful world, husbands and wives have at one another. And there's a constant fight over who's going to be in charge and who's going to make decisions and who's going to wear the pants in this house. Right? And if you fight long enough, then you wind up paying a lot of money to the law firm of that is mine and this is yours. Right? Why is that? Because this formerly harmonious relationship that human beings were created to enjoy has now been broken by sin. And God is declaring what's going to happen as a result in this most precious of all relationships. This woman is going to want to rule over her husband, but he will rule over her. There's going to be fighting and dominating rather than love and leadership. This kind of conflict is part of God's judgment. And by the way, again, this has nothing to do with how marriage should be. Do not read this passage and think, well, this is how God made marriage. No. 
For that, you need to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, and Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, where what we're taught there is how to reverse God's judgment in Christian marriage. But this separation that happens between the first couple occurs not just in marriage, but in all other human relationships that result from this. By the end of chapter 4, you'll see not only the first murder, you'll see the rise of the first civilizations that are set against one another and the arrival of the first warlord. That's just a few generations after these people. Sin separates people from one another. They hate and struggle and fight and argue and try to dominate each other as they come out of the womb because of sin. There's also separation from our created purpose. If you look at 16 to 19 again, this is addressed to both the woman and the man, and men and women will both experience frustration and pain in their created purposes. We've already mentioned the division from one another in verse 16, but there's more. Women who are made to carry children, their bodies are crafted by God to, to carry the child into the next generation, right? Ask a woman what the who has had children, what the most painful experience she has had in her life is. And she will probably give you great detail on how long she was in labor and how big the tear was and how much agony she was in. I've been to four of those. None of them looked fun. Okay? My job was to, was to stand there and say, would you like some ice chips? I love you so much. You're doing so well. I am so sorry. <laughs> okay. Because this is painful, right? Women experience pain, by the way, in every part of that process. It's not just when the child is born. It's when the child leaves your house. We had that happen on Friday. I moved my eldest daughter into her first apartment over in Indianapolis. It's a wonderful place. She's going to be a fantastic math teacher at a great high school on the north side of India, and we're so proud of her, right? And we also cried on the day that we left because part of our soul is walking around outside of our body over there, right? And it's four hours away from mom and dad. We're not happy about this, right? We're really happy that she's an independent adult and grown and all that, right? But also in pain. Because we miss her and her room is empty. I got to get some furniture in there quick, right? Can't walk around with that empty room across the hall from my room anymore. Also, men. Work will become toil. Sweat will be required to get food. The things that make work frustrating and hard will become features of life. By the way, anybody ever had to sweat to earn a living? Yeah. Okay? 
Our bodies also will no longer live forever as we were designed to do, but we will all one day return to the dirt from which we were made. In addition to that form of death, we also experience this. And I'm just going through the bad news here. Okay? Bad news just keeps getting worse. We also experience separation from nature. You see that in verses 18 to 21. Thorns and thistles are explicitly mentioned as part of God's judgment, indicating they were not part of God's original creation. This happens after the fall. How come I got I got locust trees growing up in my garden with great big thorns on them? Right? The fall. How come I got dandelions to dig? The fall. How come I got mosquitoes that eat me when I try to pick berries, right? The fall. How come there are chiggers in the world? Uh, uh, the fall, right? Um, stings and bites and disease and predation and storms and hurricanes and tornadoes and typhoons and wildfires and all the brokenness of the natural world is not the way that God made the world to be. All these things are the result of having sinful people living on a broken planet. And the planet is broken because the people who live on it are. And so as Romans says, the creation was subjected to frustration, not willingly, but according to the will of Him who subjected it. And that the creation groans, longing for the day when it is set free from its bondage to decay. The idea being that, that the planet does not willingly support us. It's not made anymore to be perfectly suited for us to live on it. We no longer live in harmony with it. Right? Anybody notice it was like 187 degrees on Friday? <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. That is not the way that God made the world to be. Right? Not the way that God made the world to be. But that's the way that we live in the world. Because we live in separation from nature. And one day we're going to return to the dirt from which we were made. We're also separated from ourselves. I've already mentioned verse 7 and the need to cover ourselves and the shame that we now experience now. But part of our separation from ourselves as well as our separation from God and one another is that very thing. That sin sets us at war with our own souls and we have trouble living at peace with ourselves. How many of you like to sit quietly in a room all alone? With no music on, nothing to read, and just your own thoughts echoing around in your head. The thing is, is that we now live not only with shame, but also with regret. The longer we live, the more regrets we accumulate. I don't care what anybody says. There's no such thing as no regrets. All of us, if we live long enough, have periods of our life that we wish we could go back and do differently than we did. Mistakes that we made that we cannot undo, and we have trouble looking at ourselves in the mirror and liking what we see staring back. We're separated from ourselves. And we know 
based on verses 22 and 23, that we are not meant to live like this. We're not meant to live the way we are because of sin. And God, by the way, God's, God's punishment in driving us out of the garden is punishment, but it's also an act of grace. Because it means that we are not going to live forever this way. Amen? We are not always going to be like this. And the world is not always going to be broken. Because we are cut off from the tree of life, we have the opportunity for our sin to die with us. And for us to be set free from it and to live forever with God as we were meant to. And that brings me up to the last part of this message. The most important part. Because I've given you all of the bad news up to now. But now some of you are going, well, you told me that we were going to talk about how every part of the Bible connects to Jesus. And I am going to keep that promise. There's a, there's a verse in here that I skipped. It's really important. In fact, it's the key to the whole passage. In fact, it's the key to the whole Bible. The whole rest of it from here. And it's verse 15. And it's about, it's a, it's a word of prophecy telling you how all this mess is going to get fixed. It's God speaking to the serpent and He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall, uh, you shall bruise His heel. The point of Genesis 3, stick with me here on this, is that God's Word is proven true, just as it always has been and always will be. One act of rebellion brought not only sin into the world, but death into the world in many different ways. But that isn't the end of the story. This promise, verse 15, is what theologians call the Proto-Evangelion. That's about a $50 crossword puzzle word that you do not need to know, but you do need to know what it means. It's the first announcement of the gospel to the people of the world. So when does the first gospel announcement come? Right after the first sin. In other words, as soon as there was a need for God to proclaim redemption to people who were lost and separated from Him by their sin, it's at that very moment that God brings the gospel to people. And the promise here in Genesis 3.15 is that there will come a person. The word offspring here in, the, in my Bible, in the ESV, translates the Hebrew, a Hebrew word uh, that's maybe translated in your Bible, seed. Okay? The word seed is a singular word. It's in a singular form in Hebrew. It, in other words, it refers to a particular person who will come from the woman. And this person, the woman's offspring, will crush the serpent's head even as he is wounded by the same serpent who led our first parents into sin. And the idea here is that the serpent will be defeated. And with it, the sin that brought all these forms of death and separation into the world. That all of the curse, in other words, will be reversed when this person comes. And so the big story of the Bible then is how God kept that promise. 
in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, whom you'll remember if you know the story, if you paid attention at Christmas, was born, how? Of a woman. Women do not have seed. That's a male thing. But there's going to be a, a particular man born of a woman without a human father, born the offspring of a particular woman descended from Eve, the mother of all the living. And if you read the Gospel of Luke, and particularly Luke's account of Jesus' arrest and betrayal and crucifixion and death, what you cannot help but notice is that the symbols of the fall and the garden are all over this story. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, He is in such anguish over the suffering and death that He is about to experience that He sweats from His face drops of sweat mixed with what? Blood. Because faced with a choice in a garden between obeying God and dying because of, a, because of a tree, he picks obey God. Jesus is, in other words, the better Adam. He is the better man who stands in our place and faced with a choice about a tree chooses death over disobedience. So that our disobedience to God might not result in our death. And as Jesus is put to death on a cross, you'll remember He is crowned with what? Thorns. Because out of the ground will come thorns. He is crowned with thorns that grew because of humanity's sin. He hangs between earth and, and heaven so that the separation between us and God might be bridged. When He dies, if you'll remember the story, you'll remember that the entire sky went black. Why? Because the One who brought light into the world is in himself shrouded in darkness because of sin. The rocks split open at his death. He dies abandoned and betrayed by his friends that the separation between us as people might be healed. Though he was God and it was not his nature to die, Jesus is buried in the dirt from which we were made that the rift between us and nature might be closed. Jesus dies in pain and in suffering according to God's purpose and God's plan for Him that God might restore to us the purpose in glorifying Him in relationship with God and with one another and bring an end to pain and suffering of every kind. And Jesus' death in our place for our sins means that our sins are covered. And we can therefore stand without shame in God's presence and in one another's presence because we don't bear shame and guilt and regret 
anymore because they've been canceled out by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And we will one day stand before God and enjoy His presence forever as forgiven people who no longer need to hide from Him despite our sin because the penalty has been paid. Amen? The Apostle Paul describes Jesus' actions this way, fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3.15, Romans uh, 5.15-19. This is what God says here. The gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many sins and brought justification. For if by the the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man will many be made righteous. You get the contrast there? How was Genesis 3.15 fulfilled? In Jesus Christ, who gives us access back to the tree of life, who enables us to stand in God's presence, who heals all the divisions that the fall into sin brought, who not only begins to heal marriage, but begins to heal our divisions with other people. He puts us in a place called the church where we get to practice healing those divisions between people. He heals our relationship with Him. He heals our relationship with ourselves. One day He'll heal our relationship with the natural world. There's a lot more I could say about this, but don't miss the obvious point. God made the world and humanity perfect in the the beginning, but our first parent's sin broke us, broke the world, broke the relationship we had with God, broke a relationship with one another. But Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. And because that's true, there's just two things I want you to do by way of response. Number one, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, and I just implore you with this exhortation that there's no better day than today that's going to come for that to change. Because everything that is broken and wrong with you can be healed and solved and dealt with through a relationship with Jesus Christ who is the promised one who was to come, who was born the seed of the woman, who died in your place for your sin that you might be made right with God. To pay the penalty for sin that you deserve, to die the death that you should have died, and to make you right with God. And one day all things will be made right by Him. And all things that are, that are sad will come untrue because of Him. But only for those 
who put their faith in Jesus Christ, who walk across the bridge back to God that God himself made in the person of Jesus Christ. So put your faith in Jesus. But if you're a believer already, and can I encourage you to do this? Rejoice in God's salvation today. And in the fact that the curse is being reversed and sin and death will not have the final word. In fact, they're not going to have anything like the final word. Because we will live forever and ever in a new and better creation. In fact, the, the end of the book is in the same way as if he, at the beginning. We live in a garden and walk with God. Only there's not one tree of life, there's a bunch growing along both sides of a river that feed it. And there's different crops of fruit from the tree of life every month. And we'll walk with God in the light of His presence. And that gives us a lot to rejoice in. Amen? I don't know what else is happening today, but that gives you a lot to rejoice in today. So let's pray, and then let's continue to rejoice in our relationship with God. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that Jesus Christ is the great King. The King of all creation who came to become a man born of a woman with no intervention from a human father that He might be born sinless, that He might die for the sins that we did. Father, we thank You that in Him we have the reversal of the curse and the promise that one day we will live with You in a restored and renewed world made new. Father, we look forward to that day. We pray that perhaps today we would hear the trumpet blast and see the dead in Christ rise from the dirt in which they were planted. And that we might dwell with You Father, whether that day is today or a thousand years from now or next week or whenever it is, Father, we put our trust in You. And we rejoice in You. And we rejoice in the fact that our sin and our shame and our guilt and our separation has come to an end through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whom we pray. Amen.